From international design practice Hassel, you're listening to Hassel Talks. Behind the doors of a previously unloved 1970s brutalist building in Brisbane, there are now teams of researchers, surgeons, engineers, industrial designers, and other very clever people working on groundbreaking, life-changing biofabrication and medical research. The Hurston Biofabrication Institute opened its doors to Queensland and Australia in 2021. Already it has changed the lives of many people, enabled rapid iteration, testing, application and problem solving, and it's a project I'm so delighted to have worked on, with a brief that asked designers to create a place that enabled ideas, collaboration and agility to respond. I'm Carolyn Solly. I'm an interior designer at Hassel and I'm joined today by the wonderful Mathilde Dessel. Mathilde is the general manager at Hurston Biofab. Her specialty is 3D health technologies, digital health, and design innovation for healthcare. She was a crucial stakeholder and collaborator in the successful outcome of the Institute. Hello, Mathilde. So great to talk to you today. Hey, Caroline. Nice to speak to you as well. I'm excited. Yeah, well, thank you very much. I'd like to start a conversation by acknowledging and respecting the Yugara and Turbal people as the original custodians, designers and placemakers of the land upon which your Hurston Biofabrication is situated. And of course, from where we're speaking today, we pay respect to the traditional owners, their elders and knowledge holders, past, present and emerging. Their knowledge has and will ensure the continuation of cultures and traditional practices. So, Mathilde, you've been in the facility for about a year now, and you know that I love visiting to sort of see all of the amazing work that you do. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing the story that you told me about um, a gentleman with no vocal cords and how you helped them through the Institute. Yeah, so that's, um, that's a fairly recent case where um, we were contacted by a physiotherapist and um, she told us about... That, that, that gentleman who kept being admitted um, in our respiratory medicine department at the hospital fairly regularly. And the challenge for this individual is that um, they have a, a little stoma. Um, so it's like a little hole in the neck. Uh, the, the, the gentleman is using that to, the hole to, to breathe. Um, and... The gentleman also has no vocal cord and fairly irregular anatomical contours on, on the neck. And the challenge that was presenting itself is that in the absence of vocal cords and with the stoma, can't cough through their mouth. So you know how, how all the, the dust we inhale comes and sits on our lungs. Probably a million times in a day we do, we do cough, um, but they can't. So they kept developing those chest infections that kept coming back. And every three, three, four months, you know, the person was admitted in hospital and had to stay there for a few weeks until the the, the problem went away. So we were contacted to see if we could design a little adapter for the gentleman's stoma to help him cough. So there are little devices that exist when, when you have difficulties to cough, like a cough assist, if you like, a positive respiratory pressure device. But... They fit in your mouth. He can't cough through his mouth, so for him that was a bit useless. So I just went down to respiratory medicine to meet the patient. Um, I took a 3D scan of the neck and brought that scan back to our lab uh, at HBI. Our engineers then developed a little adapter, pretty basic, pretty simple, little 3D printed adapter uh, for the cough assist device. And um, after 
you know, the necessary quality assurance and regulatory, regulatory steps, we were able to hand the device over to the patient. So that was a few months ago now. And since that's happened, the patient has been able to cough. And that means they haven't had a single hospital admission for respiratory infection since. And their quality of life has so dramatically improved that by getting rid of the infection, he was able to get an electronic larynx installed. So the patient is talking the first time in 30 years. That's amazing. That's such an interesting story. How, how long did that process take? Was it a few months? Was it? It actually only was a matter of a couple of weeks. The person was, um, was scanned when they were, were hospitalised. Um, and from basically that afternoon, I was able to reconstruct the 3D model of the patient. And then we took um, you know, a day or two to design something 3D printed in a material that wasn't going to react with the skin. And then um, on, on another visit, we were able to test the safety of the device with a physiotherapist and with a doctor. And we made some tiny adjustments, and that's the beauty of 3D printing. It supports iteration so beautifully. So when we need little design changes, it's, it's fairly easy to then make another device, if you like. And the patient went home, and at their next visit to meet their doctor and physiotherapist, we were able to hand him the final device. I guess going back a step, what was your workplace before you had the Institute in the last sort of year or so? I come from the academic world, so I was working in a university. So that's been, I guess, the biggest change for me is to be able as a biomedical engineer, as a designer, to be physically embedded on, on the hospital campus. So I guess the difference very much was that tyranny of distance when you're even in the same city, but you need to start, you know, having to hop on a bus or, or, or in a car or on your electric scooter to go places, it makes things a little harder and perhaps a little less agile than when we're able to be all physically collocated and, and we are on the same floor or we are, you know, a couple of corridors away. Was that one of the key deciding factors of why you situated the Biofabrication Institute on campus and, you know, at the Royal Brisbane Hospital? Absolutely. It was that intention to very much collocate expertise um, and support those smooth interactions between engineers, designers, clinicians, industry representatives, academics, and most importantly, patients. That's great. And what, what other sort of activities go on behind the doors of HBI since you've opened? <laughs> so much. <laughs> so what's, um, I guess, interesting about what we do in the Institute is that we, we do support, I guess, three big pillars of activity. So there is, you know, examples like the one we just discussed where that really touch on utilizing the 3D technologies to have a direct clinical impact. So that is directly affecting the delivery of care in the hospital. So we talked about the example of a little you know, custom device. What we do hundreds of, it's what's called an anatomical model for the purpose of surgical planning. So if Caroline, you need to have a, a surgery done and it's gonna be quite complex, 
what we do is that we will take your medical images, you know, obtained with a CT scan or, or other means, and we will use that to very much recreate 3D model of your anatomy, and we likely are going to 3D print that, and it's going to be used to plan your surgery so it goes as smoothly as possible. So it's able to be discussed between the engineer and the clinician. The clinician is able to, you know, discuss the model with her colleagues. So you know, she might evaluate, you know, where she might cut or where she might reconstruct. She might, you know, bend the plate beforehand just to maximize the time that is spent in surgery. The third pillar is very much education and how we can create those new pathways for engineers, for designers, and for clinicians that very much embrace the integration of 3D technologies. Mm. Yeah, one of the interesting things I really enjoy when I come and visit you is seeing the clinicians there in their scrub, seeing the orthopedic surgeons, you know, come from come from surgery right in to do some of that rapid testing and collaboration with your designers and engineers. Um, is, is that sort of the experience of a, a day in the life of the institute? <laughs> Absolutely. All these people are, you know, walking, walking in and out and the artist making the space so that it's plastic enough mm. work for everyone, which... Like, how was it for you? Because I guess you had to incorporate like what everyone's priorities were. And, you know, we were doing co-design for the space and you had researchers, you had engineers, you had surgeons. Like, how was it for you to try and make everyone happy? Well, I think that was, yeah, that's such an interesting part of the brief is that we're actually designing for people and connection and not necessarily machines and 3D printers. We're actually designing, you know, how you want to work in the future. So that was a really great, you know, um, discussion that we had, I think, early on about the different types of people and, and how they might use the workplace differently. So we're very much kind of cognizant of, of creating a lot of transparency that people like the clinicians and the surgeons would feel really super welcome in the space and be able to kind of come and go as they please, uh, but also, you know, creating space that was suitable for research and, and kind of detailed and focused work as well. So I think that played a real real factor in understanding everyone's kind of desires to, to collaborate and how design could support collaboration. I guess it's, um, I think it's quite interesting that we talked about collocation of expertise and I guess the benefits it can have, like during the pandemic, that was massive um, because we were developing, you know, medical devices to support COVID-19 responses. And so it was all a bit hectic and we had to move really, really fast. And that ability to do very, you know, rapid ID development, rapid prototyping and rapid testing and evaluation of those ideas on site, I think helped us respond really, really quickly and to really action what iterative design means. There's a lot of history in the building. It used to be the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital was in this building. It was the hospital. And then it's been used uh, over the past, I think, 50 years, you know, for administrative purposes and then clinical again. We see a lot of surgeons say, oh, I did, you know, 
my internship here, you know, that many decades ago, and now he's undergoing a new transformation with HBI, but also with considerations for other floors. Um, how did you actually like, honor and incorporate the history of the building in what you did for HBI? Like I know with the terrazzo touches, for example. Yeah, look, it's really interesting because it was designed way back in 1977 and it's certainly a very architectural building, but brutalist in its nature. Um, and we understood from the research that it used to be also a specialist research and laboratory facility. So it's had a really varied past. And that's what we thought was really interesting that we created this opportunity to re-life an otherwise kind of tired and, and sad um, building to, to almost come full circle to becoming a laboratory again. So we certainly use those constraints, I guess, and the design challenges to to really harness something that was completely different and completely unexpected because we we yeah, we want your your consumers and your um, partners and philanthropists to 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 do exactly what you've described walk in and say wow I didn't expect this to be there so the institute has so many things to different stakeholders i mean you've just mentioned an example of a life changing kind of outcome from the work that you do but it's also a place for public transparency and education and innovation and healing so it's just it's just a really interesting place that we've really enjoyed working on and actually hoping that it it's future proof that it's flexible for all of the advances in technology that we can never kind of predict but hopefully we've built a facility with you that um, responds and changes over time. Yes, patients do love it too. Mm, you know, we wanted to create a space that patients and consumers felt really comfortable in. I think some of the issues that you've described could, could potentially be quite traumatic for different people. And certainly we wanted to create a, a, a space that, that made people feel really welcome. So I think intentionally our, our design is based around human kind of scale materials. Um, you referenced the, the terrazzo that was from the original uh, brutalist uh, building from the 70s and we wanted to kind of reference that in the palette so that everything feels quite natural, um, timeless and not, you know, not necessarily over clinical or, or, or scary, I guess, to, to people that are coming from the general public. And I think the transparency through how does play a big role as well because we have a portion of the institute that is accessible to the public. You know, when you go to, um, you know, posh restaurants and you can see what happens in the kitchen. People have worked. So we, we've got some, some elements of that very much happening where when consumers, visitors do, do come to the institute, they can, have a, they can have a walk around, they can approach a 3D laboratory without getting in, but they can still get a glimpse of what activities are, are happening in there. Interestingly, quite recently I had... Um, one of consumer representatives, and I just found him in our staff kitchen making himself a cup of tea. I was delighted that they felt comfortable enough to walk through that open door and walk in the kitchen, make themselves a cup of tea, sit down and start engaging with, you know, a medical student who happens to be walking through at the same time and, and is starting to share what they're working on. Yeah, that's fantastic. Can can you describe, I guess, a bit about the sort of the inclusive nature and how the design, I guess, supports that? Typically, hospital waiting rooms are not very welcoming spaces. 
They're a bit scary. It's a bit noisy. It's all mismatched chairs. You said earlier, you know, how about how we try to design a space that was welcoming. So we have very much tried to create a space that is inclusive, that is free-flowing. We've designed a couple of um, very beautiful concert rooms, which we have started to use already to, to consent patients and very much tried to, I guess, design something that had a flow that would, you know, warranty privacy, um, comfort, um, and the preservation of, of dignity for a patient. I think you, um, so it's really heartwarming when, you know, we see patients who can walk in and feel comfortable enough to, you know, they can have a seat, can have a cup of tea, um, while we can, you know, then come and, and, and have that conversation. It takes bravery on their part to come on board with what we do um, and, and consumers so far have been absolutely wonderful but imagine like a few decades ago if you had walked in and you would have said are you going to receive a 3d printed device you might have been like sorry what <laughs> yeah exactly and that's what's so boring about it it's just you know it's unimaginable technology that that you're producing you know it's really really fantastic but i do love that story i think I think the idea that someone feels so comfortable that they can make themselves a tea, um, a cup of tea, is just such a fantastic story. And it leads on to other opportunities. So that particular consumer is involved with a um, larger group of, um, which is a peer support group for burn survivors, and so they have um, get together where you know people can can uh, you know come and share experiences and and stories. So. Leading on from that, they asked if, you know, could they meet here? Um, wow. And so we said, yes, you can absolutely meet here. So in a few weeks' time, you see in a couple of weeks, we have, um, we have that group of, um, of peer support for burn survivors who is going to come and spend an afternoon here. And they're bringing a um, speaker who's... Um, a person who's the first person to receive a particular type of medical device that um, to, to, to heal the skin uh, following severe burns. So again, incredibly brave individuals. So we're going to have these people coming, they bring their own speaker, who's going to come and share their experience. And then, you know, some people might like to come and take a look at the lab and look at what our latest advances are using 3D printing technologies for burn scare. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, that sounds great. And what a fantastic opportunity for the facility to be, to be utilised in that way. Um, actually, you mentioned the Burns, um, the Burns support group and understand you're, you're doing more than just 3D printing within the facility. You're also working on different apps and VR technology? Is, is, is that the case? Yeah, so we've also been using the space. So you, you designed for us a room that we use extensively. It's called the Innovation Hub, which is a very flexible space that's got beautiful big screens for, for AV and microphones and, and cameras and, and a way to configure seating so we can have it very formal or very casual. So a very, I guess flexible plastic space. And we've been running a lot of co-design sessions in that room with burn survivors and with burns clinicians as well 
to be able to start integrating virtual reality technologies into routine care. So, you know, virtual reality for healthcare, it's absolutely exploding. Um, but the hardware and software combinations that exist out there are not always particularly suitable to, um, you know, the, the use in the specific context of burns care and of public health as well. Have you noticed any changes in your colleagues since the Institute's been open? Yes, I think people are being perhaps even more trans and multidisciplinary than ever before. Last, last Friday, I was processing a 3D scan um, of a patient. Um, and um, I don't get to do it very much anymore. But once in a while, I like to take the scan and, and process it myself. And I make a point of not doing it at my desk. I go in the lab to do it. Um, so I take the scans, uh, seen the patient, I've scanned them, and I, I, I went to the lab. And I plug in, you know, one of the big high-performance computers, and I'm starting to process my scan. I'm not saying anything to anyone. So next second, I've got one of our designers who's walking past and starting to point things on the screen. Be like, oh, what is this here? And is this an artifact there? And and da da da. And so next minute, I've got you know, one of our biomedical engineers who, um, you know, I can just call out and say, hey, I think, can you check about, can you check this particular feature there? It looks a little weird. What, what do you think? Um, so he's able to do that. And, you know, three minutes later, one of our surgeons is going to walk in and I'm able to say, ah, perfect, you're here. Come <laughs> and have a look at this. Because the three of us have been wondering about this particular feature here and and I'm not sure what to do about it. What, what, what do you think? And so that surgeon is able to come and, and have a look. And, and, and so the, the problem was solved through that beautiful, organic, free-flowing, multidisciplinary collaboration that we had between engineers, designers, and, and, and that surgeon who is... Um, looking after that particular patient. So we were able to solve it in four minutes by, you know, being organically able to, to solve that by walking past each other, which we would not have been able to do previously uh -huh. before we had that opportunity for collocation. So, Karen, if I could ask a last question to you. Um, if you had to do this again, or if you were you know, if another hospital in Asia-Pacific, you know, we're looking at setting up their own version of what we have here, what would be your advice to them if you had to do it different again? Like, is there something you would do differently? Oh, I think I would definitely do a lot of things. Well, I think I would do things the same in that, you know, making sure that we we design for people. I think first and foremost, so really understanding the brief of the people, um, you know, suggesting that it is a co-located facility because all of your anecdotes kind of respond to how important co-location is with other clinical um, areas. Uh, I also would think that, you know, re-lifing or repurposing a building, you know, you know, particularly space that might be underutilized to sort of 
giving it new life through a facility like HBI would be really beneficial for for those you know different facilities in Asia Pacific. So, so I think you know I don't necessarily think we would do anything differently. I think we would just make sure that we're we're always designing for people. Thank you so much, Matilda, for your time. It was really incredible, and I just love all those variety of anecdotes. Were just awesome. That was really fun. I haven't done a podcast in a while, so that was fun. I'm Carolyn Sully. You've been listening to an episode of Hassle Talks. Please subscribe and leave us a review where you can. We'd love for you to share your thoughts and feedback with us on the insights we gather from across our network of designers, researchers, clients, and collaborators like Matilde. Don't forget, you can find out about our work and insights at hasslestudio.com. This episode was produced by Prue Vincent and Michelle Bailey.